Every work team has moments of conflict and dysfunction. Sometimes productive conflict is a necessary part of wrestling through big ideas to get to the best possible outcome. But sometimes our teams become mired in conflict that is entirely avoidable because it's based in vastly different communication styles or different motivations and misunderstandings. Enter the Enneagram. The Enneagram offers not only self-awareness, but also curiosity and deeper understanding of others. I teach the Enneagram and consult with teams to improve their communication styles, conflict effectiveness, and self-leadership, all of which foster highly engaged and high-performing teams. During a recent team event, I heard over and over, this just makes so much sense when they looked around the room and saw who was fitting within each type. And now I know why this person asked so many questions or this depersonalizes some of the conflict we've been having because I can tell we're just coming from different perspectives. So now that we know where we are, we can see how we can get aligned. So if you're looking for ongoing support or simply considering an engaging introspective module for your team's offsite or event, let's talk. Reach out to the Nine Types team at hello at ninetypes.co or schedule a one-on-one consultation with me on my website, ninetypes.co. And now on to the show. Welcome to Ask an Enneagram Coach. I'm your host, Steph Baron Hall. I'm a certified Enneagram coach, creator of Nine Types Co. on Instagram, and author of the new book, The Enneagram in Love. Every other week, you can find me here answering all of your pressing Enneagram questions so that you can understand yourself more clearly and find new paths toward growth. Let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of Ask an Enneagram Coach. I'm excited to be here with you today. Um, I'm really looking forward to these questions. I only have three questions today, but um, I think they're great questions. I think we'll be able to get a lot out of them. Um, And they kind of cover a variety of types, which is always great because I feel like You know, there are some episodes where I end up talking mainly about one specific type. So I'm excited to answer these. These questions came from Instagram, Patreon, and Ko-fi. So if you want to ask a question, um, you can do so via Instagram. You can DM me at Nine Types Co. Or you could send me a message on Ko-fi, which is ko.fi. And I have the link to that in my show notes. So those are two great ways to kind of get involved and um, get your questions answered. Today's show is brought to you by Enneagram Coffee, where specialty coffee and the Enneagram meet to make something uniquely special. Each coffee is specially roasted um, and meticulously chosen to best fit the Enneagram type it represents. These coffees are packaged with intentionality to the point that they actually have mantras on the outside. So there's a little reading that you can do each morning as you're as you're brewing your cup and you can really focus on what's special and meaningful about you and what you can bring to each day according to your Enneagram type. So they've actually sent me a few different roasts of coffee. So I've tried type two, type three, and type eight, and I loved all of them. I love that each of them is distinct and you can really taste the differences among them. And I think that's really cool. These are very intentional, insightful, and really well done, I think. So I just love what Enneagram coffee puts out. And so I really recommend picking up a bag of Enneagram coffee for your Enneagram type. And as a holidays approach, this will be an excellent gift. Um, So I'm sure that those around you who are also Enneagram fanatics will really appreciate getting this in the mail. And we have a special offer for you um, if you are listening from the podcast. So be sure to check out the link in the show notes to 
Get a great bag of coffee at 5% off with code 9typesco. Let's jump right in. The first question today is from a type four. She says, what does it mean that the core desire of a four is to find themselves or find their identity? Or how does that actually show up in thought and in action? And what are some real life examples of that? And she also talks about how um, it's been really helpful for her to learn about herself through the Enneagram and notice some, some things, but she's just curious how that really plays out. And I think this is a fantastic question. Um, So let's backtrack a little bit and then we'll talk a little bit more about this. So um, type four, I I often teach at type fours, um, their desire is to, their core motivation is really to find their true heart or to find their true identity. And a lot of people talk about it this way. Some people talk about um, fours as their core motivation is the desire to be understood um, or the desire to be unique and special. And I think all of those can capture an element of type four. I think one of the real challenges is that fours are are honestly so unique and special. They're so individual um, that it's actually kind of tough to encapsulate that entire type. Um, I actually think sixes are like this as well. It's really tough to encapsulate that entire type um, by giving one short, pithy um, core motivation quote. So I understand where this is coming from, obviously. Um, But when I I talk about this, what I'm really talking about is a desire to understand themselves, um, to feel themselves fully and to investigate their life to, and go deeper into what it means to be who they are. And so one of the way, one of the places this comes from is actually, um, the triads, so the intelligence centers. I've been getting a lot of questions about this recently, um, but we'll talk really quickly about the heart intelligence center and what that means um, because it's going to come up later as well. So the intelligence centers are basically these different ways that each type is has intelligence. Um, so two, three, and four are in the heart center. Five, six, and seven are in the head center, and eight, nine, and one are in the gut or the body center. And in the heart, and each each center really has like a um, one specific underlying emotion that that kind of continually they go back to or they struggle with, and they also kind of have a, an overwhelming desire for for something specific. So, in the heart center, a lot of times, what is actually happening is each of the types um, is looking for a sense of identity. So type twos present um, an image of being helpful and um, lovable and wanted to others. And, and that kind of, in some ways, they believe that if others see them that way, that they will be lovable. Um, threes do something a little bit different where they they also project an, an image outward of who they are and um, how they're valuable, but they also project an image inward. So they inward and outward, they're trying to convince themselves and everyone else that they're valuable, that they're worthy, um, that they are successful, etc. And then fours um, actually are kind of the ones that we want to focus on today. So fours present an image to themselves internally uh, of an identity or an image that they're after. And, and I, when we say present, it does sound a, a bit like performance. And I don't think that's entirely accurate. I think that there is, but there's something about it that's searching. So in each of the types, um, even when they're presenting, it, it's searching. It's asking the question, am I worthy? Am I lovable? Um, am I significant? Do I matter? It's asking those questions and, and looking for the answers, whether in themselves or in the world around them. So with fours, what we notice is that 
there always seems to be something more. There always seems to be something underneath the thing. And that is like what they're searching for. And I don't know that there necessarily is always more, but or whether there is or not, I don't think that's what matters. I think what matters is that the four feels like there's something else. There's something missing. There's something that they're trying to discover, uncover about themselves or trying to discover or uncover in their environment. Um, It's just this constant sense of like pursuit, I guess, um, and kind of on a quest for understanding. And so part of, I think part of the type four's desire to feel understood by others is also reflected in their desire to understand themselves. So sometimes we'll talk about uh, type fours being self-absorbed and that doesn't mean they're selfish. It's not like that. It's like, um, it's navel gazing in a sense, uh, but always kind of like they live in their head um, because they're constantly trying to investigate what's underneath that, what's underneath that, what's underneath that, you know, how am I doing? How am I feeling? They're constantly kind of checking in. And I think what's really interesting about the Enneagram in general is that each of the types we, we can only see our own perspective and in most ways. Um, and until we start kind of waking up to that perspective, it's hard to imagine doing it differently. So I think that a lot of times fours, they don't even realize that that other people don't see the world in the same way. Um, so it can be comforting, but it can also be hard because I think sometimes for fours, they might think like, oh, I really thought that I was the only one who felt this way or the only one who saw life this way. Um, and that can feel helpful and it can feel a little bit hurtful as well. So that's kind of what I mean with the fours around identity and searching to find their the, their true selves and their true heart. Um, it's a little bit ambiguous. I, I just think that that's one of the things about the Enneagram is um, what does it mean for you? Um, what does it mean for you as a four to investigate that and to search for that and to find it? And what does it mean if you can never fully know yourself because you're a human and you're constantly changing and shifting and evolving? So yeah, that's kind of what that means. But on to practical examples. So one example that I'll that I see all the time that I'll just mention is the tendency to identify with various personality frameworks. So for example, and I will say, I don't think this is a bad thing. I just think that it's it's a thing that I've noticed because um, it's this type four tendency to like truly understand and truly know themselves. What more can be known and a level of like curiosity and imagination that they're after. Um, so what I see a lot is fours and comments will say, or DMs or question stickers, like all of this on Instagram, they'll say, for example, I'm a four wing five social sexual four, six, nine, tri-type, Sagittarius, Sun, Capricorn, Moon, Taurus, Rising, INFJ. Okay, so like I said, not necessarily a bad thing, but you notice in this example, uh, I didn't I didn't take a specific comment, but if this is your entire combination, that's funny. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, it wasn't intentional. I'm not like coming for somebody, but um, it's not bad or wrong. It's just it's a way to understand the self and, and to ask that question. So I think that's really what fours are are after. And and another thing I've noticed from fours is that there's a tendency to like, for example, if I post something on Instagram or if I say something on the podcast and it doesn't exactly map onto how the four feels inside, they'll send me like a very long email or a very long direct message and say like, 
this didn't really get me for all of these reasons and et cetera, et cetera. Um, which I totally understand wanting to feel understood and seen. And also I'm limited. Like I can't understand and see every single individual. And so, but, but there, there is that need to like explain and describe themselves um, in a different or a deeper way than what an Instagram post can. So I think that's kind of what we mean. I hope that that answer is helpful. Um, I would say if that core motivation of like seeking to find your true identity and seeking to find the true self doesn't resonate at all, um, then maybe it's helpful to look at a different type. Um, Sometimes what I've noticed is a lot of people say, I'm a nine because every test says I'm a nine, but I don't feel like a nine or I don't resonate with the core motivation of a nine. And I say, ignore the tests and start understanding yourself, start looking inward, um, start reading and and reflecting on who you really are um, and not on what a test says, because there are some tests that that can be accurate, but a lot of them aren't. And especially if you are a counter type to your core type, then it's going to be tough. So that is type four. All right. Moving on to our next question. I've gotten my boyfriend very involved in the Enneagram as well, and it has really helped us learn about each other and ourselves. I'm a two-wing three, and he is a three-wing two. And I was wondering if you could give me a summary on a two-three relationship. So this person, she's asking this because she got my book, she read the book, and she's just like, what else is there? What, what more can we find? So this question, I believe, came from Kofi. So... Two-wing three and three-wing two are essentially two sides of the same coin. Both are charming, engaging, and passionate. They can give one another lots of attention and both value strong personal connection and positivity. This pairing has a lot going for them because they can be quite connected and dynamic. I find that when that when twos and threes gravitate toward one another, it's because they share a deep mutual understanding. And actually, there are a couple other type pairings that I've feel have this tendency, um, two and three, four and five, and one and nine. I think those type pairings in particular, they're next to each other and they tend to gravitate toward each other because they just get each other in a really different way. Both are in the heart center, which we just talked about. And so they value emotional connection, but they do so a bit differently. So the three is often more ambitious and driven, and they might have a tendency to be hard on themselves when they don't succeed. But fortunately, their two offers love and acceptance and warmth so that the three can learn that they have value beyond their performance. That's really important. The two is often more supportive and relational, and they might have a tendency to forget about their own needs for the sake of supporting others. Fortunately, their three helps energize them and push them a bit so they can figure out what they really want in life and go after it. That said, this dynamic can also be a bit of a problem because threes can be so driven that they sometimes forget that others around them might not want to play the supporting role. They might subconsciously expect the two to always be their right hand, and they might never notice that this is fueling resentment from the two. The big thing that threes need to hear is that twos have dreams and desires too. It's important for the three to take a step back and play the supportive partner role for their two. Because both can be so passionate, it's important to cultivate a give and take and teamwork relationship. There is one big thing that both of these types can really struggle with, and that is boundaries. 
So both of these types can struggle with boundaries between one another, but also between themselves as a couple and with others. As an example of between one another, both of these types might feel responsible for their partner's emotional well-being, and they both have a tendency to take on some of the feelings of one another. So if one is feeling sad, the other might either begin to feel sad too, or might make it their own responsibility to fix it. It's good to be empathetic, of course, but that tendency to like want to fix the partner um, or, or to fix somebody else's feelings communicates to that person that they aren't allowed to feel the way they feel. And in this relationship, it can go both ways. Both can tend to do this. And because they both really want to stay optimistic, they want to stay positive, they can end up not always making space for the harder, more negative feelings that we all have and we all need to feel. So then let's move on to boundaries between this couple and others. So that can look like committing their time, energy, and attention to those outside the relationship and keeping very little for themselves. For example, in this pairing, um, if either of the types is asked to host a bake sale, for example, at their kid's school, they might say yes, even if they don't have capacity because they believe that they're needed. And this can cause them to go above and beyond for the bake sale or for whatever scenario that they're asked to um, step in and fill. Um, And they disregard their time with their spouse, um, what's really best for their family, and those sorts of things. Um, Sometimes this can be a joint affair too. So sometimes, I mean, maybe imagine a couple is asked to host a fundraiser and they just go above and beyond and they both get really involved. Neither is willing to pump the brakes and they end up totally burned out and exhausted. Um, That can easily happen with a three and two combination. And I think actually with types one, two, and three, this dynamic can be really common. So when I say things like this, people often ask, how do I actually do that? Like, how do I actually build boundaries to where I'm not running myself into the ground all the time? Um, And there's really no easy answer. Um, I have a few resources, though, that have been really helpful for me, so they might also be helpful for you. For starters, I love the question Suzanne Stabile asks, which is, what is mine to do? So ask yourself, is this mine to do? And do I have capacity? So when we're talking about this, it's not just about like, are you good at it? And can you do it? Like, can you physically do it? It's like, do you have emotional, physical and spiritual capacity to do it? So I think this can happen a lot when we see a need. So when twos and threes see a need around them, they really want to step in. They really want to help. They really want to make things better for other people um, because they they can often see the potential. I think twos are a lot more helpful. Uh, threes are a lot more like seeing the potential of, of, you know, if they applied their type threeness to this scenario, like how amazing it could be. Um, so I think that's common. I think it's really important to take a step back from that because it's just no way to live. You cannot constantly be, and I I say that as a type three, (laughs) we can't constantly be running ourselves into the ground like that. When we're talking about capacity, it might take a while to get in tune with that. And it's really important to pay attention to feelings and pay attention to what's underneath it. So specifically for these types, I want you to pay attention to, um, for type two, when you are feeling type eight come up and for type three, when you're feeling type nine come up. So first let's talk about twos accessing type eight. So again, Suzanne Stabile, who 
has begun to call herself the Enneagram Godmother, which I think is apt because I've learned so much from her. Um, I think she's a fantastic Enneagram teacher. But she says we cannot protect ourselves without our stress number. So when type twos in stress access type eight, a lot of the time what that can look like is saying no. They literally access boundaries and say, no, I cannot do that. Um, Eights typically have no problem saying this is mine to do and that is not. They're not going to bend over backwards or exhaust themselves. They might for their family specifically, but they won't do that for other people necessarily if they don't have capacity. And so type twos can access some of that energy. But one thing eights can also be known for is being a bit uh, demanding about about things and um, when they're in unhealthy spaces, right? So if a two is exhausted, they're burned out, they're accessing the low side of eight, they might get really demanding about getting their needs met. And so if you are a two and you see that in yourself, it's not the same as just having boundaries and saying no, or saying I'm going to attend to my own needs. It's being demanding about the expectation that others attend to your needs. That's kind of that's kind of the low, um, unhealthy aspect of it. Um, so pay attention to that. Pay att- look back on your life and say, okay, what were some times, if you're going to try to build boundaries for yourself, notice when you felt those things. What were the precursor emotions to feeling those things? So if you think, man, I got really like indignant about getting my needs met by others after I had committed to X, Y, and Z, um, and I was feeling these three ways. So notice that and then reflect on it and see, okay, what boundary might have helped then um, that I could put in place so that I could not feel that way again. And then type three, I would say um, notice when you are hitting that low side of nine. I think it's really, really important for threes to separate their sense of worth and their sense of um, self-value from their performance. Like I think that's super, super important and and their output, their productivity. Um, But sometimes when that is happening, it's also um, maybe accessing the low side of nine. So threes accessing type nine could look like um, feeling really listless and unmotivated and just kind of throwing up their hands and not doing anything. Again, you need that. You need to take a break. You need to unhook from the praise and criticism that can come your way when you're performing, right? That's really important. But also you need to look at like, when are you accessing type nine where you're actually like at the point of burnout? When are you just like, unable to get off the sofa? When are you literally just drinking way too much or eating way too much or watching way too much Netflix? Um, I think there's obviously a healthy balance, but the really unhealthy levels of type nine, which is narcotizing, meaning kind of numbing everything by eating, drinking, working, watching TV. Um, So numbing out by doing those things, that's a very unhealthy nine. Um, characteristic. And when threes are accessing that, it's really important to take note and pay attention to how you've gotten there. So for type threes, um, again, you have to find ways to check out, but we all have to learn to do that in healthy ways. When we're talking about this, we're really talking about, again, noticing your own tendencies and noticing when in the past you've felt really burned out or when you've gotten to those really negative spaces um, and learn to have more balance, learn to notice them before they happen, and then build boundaries around them so that in the future you can care for yourself well 
by not overcommitting yourself and not stretching yourself way too thin. So I think these two things are really important. And it's kind of interesting because types two and three, while they're similar, they have very different um, tendencies when they get unhealthy. Pay attention to that. For a long time, I actually remember uh, my husband and I had this whole conversation and um, we were like, okay, let's go see a therapist so we can build better boundaries. And it's funny because a therapist wasn't able to say, this is what your boundaries need to be, which is what I wanted. I wanted somebody to be like, here are your boundaries. And then for me to um, be able to just have that checklist. And it's just not that simple. It really is very personal, like what you can do and what you're able to do, what your capacity is. And honestly, for me, I'm constantly learning, um, constantly adjusting and changing and everything. So I wish it was like really simple, but it's just, you have to go on your own journey with that. I will say I did a quick Google search just to see what else was out there. There are so many great resources online, a lot of great books, two books I want to recommend for learning more about boundaries and how to set them is uh, Boundaries, When to Say Yes and How to Say No to Take Control of Your Life by Henry Cloud and John Townsend. And this book was written in 1992, and I think it's still very applicable. I haven't read it in a really long time, so if it seems really outdated, I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, it was it was a helpful book for me a few years ago. So I also want to rec- recommend Anything by Brene Brown. Her work is more about self-acceptance and a deep sense of worthiness, but I actually believe that's where boundaries start. So I think that's really important to kind of cultivate the sense that your life and your choices and your sense of self and your emotional well-being, all of those things are worthy of your attention. And so to not just forget ourselves to serve somebody else, um, because While some of us might have grown up in an environment where that was recommended, um, it doesn't actually make you happy and it doesn't actually make you whole for life. So really important to check those books out. Yeah, let's move on to our next question. Today, I'm really excited to tell you about a special offer from BetterHelp. Therapy has been incredibly transformational for me, um, both in my personal journey and in my relationships. I've found it to be really, really powerful. And so I'm excited to tell you more about what BetterHelp has to offer. BetterHelp makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient so that anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. Being completely online, scheduling and location is no longer an obstacle. You have access to your next high-end counseling session right at your fingertips. To give you a better idea of how great it is, a Berkeley study found BetterHelp to be as effective as face-to-face counseling, and in fact, 94% of those participants prefer the online therapy over conventional appointments, especially during COVID-19, right? This has been a big challenge. The Elite BetterHelp team matches you with the perfect professional fit according to your objectives, preferences, and current needs. They ensure that every provider they bring to the platform is the best of the best, fully licensed and in good standing. Not only does BetterHelp provide outstanding care to over 2 million clients, but they also provide additional resources on over 80 topics for any individual in need. BetterHelp has changed the game for millions of people seeking professional guidance, and it can be a game changer for you too. If you're looking to improve the quality of your life, visit the link in the show notes to access your special offer from betterhelp.com. Okay, so our final question today is, my husband is a type one. 
He struggles with himself being the best he can be, and he will hold on to any regret for a long time and let it tear him apart, even if what happened wasn't his fault or in the moment he didn't know better. I'm a type nine, and all I want to do is help him, not hurt him. How can I help him process his regrets correctly? Okay, I think this is a fantastic question, and I mean... I guess today's podcast is a little bit about my personal experience with some of these things because regret is something I've also really struggled with. Um, But in this question, I love that she said process because I think that's exactly what needs to happen. Sometimes many of us, but especially ones, have a really harsh view of our former selves. Um, And we can see all the little things we could have done or should have done to make life turn out differently. But we have to do some processing and some inner work to change that narrative. Something that's really helped me that I'll just share is a few years ago, I was dealing with a lot of frustration and a lot of just, I don't know if it's anger. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of getting to to the the point of the question, but um, I was dealing with a lot of regret. And so somebody said to me, you did the best you could with what you had. And that for me was just really, really important. It it was really, really significant for me because I think that I didn't think I had done the best I could. I think that I was really entertaining all of these different things, but like, you know, it's that whole thing. Hindsight is 2020, right? Um, We think that we could have done better, but we didn't know what we do now. And now if we were making the same choices or the same decisions, maybe it would turn out differently. But I think we can be really hard on our former selves. For example, I, for a long time, really regretted the major that I chose, even where I went to college, but also the major that I chose in college because I had one idea going in and then I changed it and and all these different things. And um, I felt like if I had just chosen a different major, then my life would turn out amazing. Or if I'd chosen a different school, then I could have had these opportunities. And that is possible. But I did the best I could at that moment with what I had with where I was in the moment too, maturity wise. And um, I mean, honestly, being 18 is a hard time to, (laughs) to make lifelong decisions for a lot of people. So yeah, I think that that phrase really helps me um, engage with more empathy toward myself. And something else I've been learning is just entertaining the whole vision. So often when we think about regrets, we focus on what could have happened in an ideal scenario. So we're like, okay, well, this is how my life turned out now. But if I had changed this one thing, then this amazing vision of my life would have been unlocked. So we have to look back and see, is that realistic? Would that have been unlocked? Or we, I mean, we don't know what would have happened, but a lot of the time we focus on all of the positive things or all of the ideal things that might have happened if this one little thing had been changed instead of seeing that the world could just look really different. Like it it might not be predictable how it looks. Um, And so entertain the whole vision. So instead of saying, if I had done this and this would have happened and then this would have happened, there's just more to it. Like there in that ideal version of yourself, there's also bad things that could have happened and and not so great things that could have happened in your life and other choices that you could have made that might have been devastating in whatever sense. So 
I just think that, that it's really important to kind of see the whole picture. And sometimes in my experience, it can actually be like perseverating, meaning you kind of get a thought in your head of, of regret and then you just keep going. You keep thinking about it. You keep circling back to it. You keep envisioning, you know, the ideal scenario if you had done that perfectly or, or whatever. And it can actually, that can, I think, coincide with some anxiety and, and, and be really challenging. But I don't know that it's helpful. Like, who are you helping by um, regretting? You know, who are you helping by wishing you'd done things differently? And I'm speaking as much to myself as I am to others, because just recently I was like, oh, I really wish I had done this thing differently. But yeah, you did the best you could with what you had and then move forward. I think ones in particular struggle with regret because regret is just a really harsh form of self-criticism. So ones typically have this strong inner critic, which is like a voice in the back of their heads that's saying, you could have done better, you should do better, you should be better, etc. And I think what's actually happening with regret with ones is a couple things. Um, one of the things is because ones are in the body triad or the gut triad and have this underlying anger that they're repressing, I think a lot of the time it's safest to express that anger back onto themselves. So rather than expressing it in the world, um, they're, they're able to really harshly judge themselves. And I think to an extent it feels maybe like it doesn't impact anyone else when they do that. And I think honestly, a lot of ones feel like if they harshly criticize themselves or if they regret everything they've ever done, it will make them better and it'll help them to be better next time. But what we can kind of observe or intuit from the outside is that that's not really what happens. What actually happens is that they can get really caught in fear and end up not actually doing the things that they might actually want to do or might actually thrive doing because they're afraid of making a mistake or what can happen is that they're just frustrated all the time and they're resentful um, of themselves and that leaks out too and they end up being resentful of others and it's kind of a constant trap and one of the really hard things about regret and self-criticism is that the, the only person who can stop that cycle is the person themselves and Another thing that I think is actually happening is they're expecting perfection of themselves because ones, you know, they, they see little room for margin of error and because they're able to look back on their life and imagine how things could have been different, right? They're idealists. So they have an ideal perspective on what the future could be like. And as a result that when they aren't measuring up to their own ideals, that can get really frustrating. And I think I really resonate with that too as a three, um, because I think for me, regret is a little bit similar to type ones, um, where it's not meeting your full potential, like having that level of idealism, having that level of almost um, self-expectation that you can be better than you are. Can that's I think that's where regret can really come in. So I think that one of the biggest antidotes to regret is to actually practice a lot more self-acceptance. And I know earlier in the podcast when I was talking about boundaries, I talked about Brene Brown, and I think that um, her 
discussion of belonging and self-acceptance and worthiness comes in here as well. I think that'll be really, really important for ones. Um, I think even the book, The Gifts of Imperfection is really fantastic. It was one of her very first books that I read, and I think they just released a 10-year anniversary edition, but it's fantastic because it really does help. Like I can't even (laughs) explain it on this podcast. Um, It was really life-changing for me. So I definitely recommend that to ones who are are struggling with feelings of um, criticism and regret and things like that. And as it turns out, Brene Brown has also shared that she's a type one. And so I think a lot of ones will really resonate with her perspective on this. So a couple practical things to do. Notice what feeling is happening underneath. What is it sadness? Is it fear? Is it frustration? What is the thing that's happening underneath that you're wanting to fix by regretting something in the past. And I think there, I think, I I guess I'd say also remorse and regret are different. Sometimes we do need to be remorseful for things we've done that have hurt others. Um, But a lot of the time I find that that regret comes from a sense of like self-rejection where maybe the only person who would have been altered by this is yourself in your own life. I think being remorseful is different, but, but getting so stuck in regret that you can't be present, thats that needs to be addressed and um, processed through. And so a couple of practical ways to do that, cultivate empathy for your present self. So that I think is probably the most important thing. And one of the things about the Enneagram that I really like um, is that it helps to cultivate empathy and to say like, that was helpful for me at the time, or this is helpful for me right now, or I'm doing the best I can even engaging with mantras. So for example, for this type one, a mantra that I recommend is I embrace myself with kindness. And even if it's not true at the moment, trying to speak it into to being, I think can be helpful because if you constantly say, I embrace myself with kindness, and then all of a sudden, maybe an error comes up in your work where somebody says, oh, hey, you made, you made a mistake right here. If you have embraced yourself with kindness, then in that moment, you can say, I embrace myself with kindness. And it's just different. It just really changes things. So I think that's really, really, really important. And then I also recommend using gratitude. Um, So either gratitude journaling or speaking out loud every day with your partner or with somebody else, um, three things that you're grateful for. Um, It can be anything small or large. Like I'm grateful that I'm breathing air today. Um, I'm grateful that I have a roof over my head. I'm grateful that I have a supportive partner. I'm grateful that I have a dog, you know, all of these little things. Um, or I'm grateful even, I love this one. I'm grateful for my own growth over the last year. Like even those little things, I think putting those things into practice is really helpful. This question I think is so tough because it's, it's about ones, but I think a lot of us can struggle with, with regret and with feeling like what we did in the past was not good enough. And I think that sometimes what we did in the past wasn't the best, maybe. (laughs) Um, And that's okay, because we did our best with what we had. And now that we know more, we're choosing something different. And um, I think that's really, really, really important. Um, So I really hope that was helpful. I I feel like you can tell that my energy with this last question kind of slowed a bit because I just have so much empathy for this question, having felt it myself. Um, Even though I'm not a one, I definitely empathize. And I know, uh, I mean, 
I feel like the nines in my life, like I had a, um, a, a roommate in college who was a type nine and, um, you know, she would be late to class and be like, Oh, you know, no worries. I got here. And I would be late to class and I'd be like, Oh my gosh, I'm the worst person ever. I'm a horrible student. Um, I, I can't, you know, do anything right, etc. And, uh, it was, it was really inspiring for me to learn from her. And also she sometimes just didn't get it. Like she didn't get how I could jump to those conclusions. She's like, it is what it is. Um, and so I think nines can be really supportive when they're able to kind of flex their empathy muscles and see that even though regret might not be where they live, um, when it's where someone else lives, obviously it, it can be really tough. So that's my answer to this question. Um, hope it was helpful for all of us in general. Being kind to ourselves, I think, is probably one of the most important things. Not because I'm perfect at it, just because I'm learning. And I think that's important. Um, so yeah, I am really looking forward to a few guests I've got coming up on the podcast. Um, I'm going to have a couple other Enneagram friends coming up. And so we'll talk a little bit more about Enneagram and therapy. That was one of my favorite episodes. And then we'll be talking a little bit more about the Enneagram at work. So I can't wait to share those podcast episodes with you. And I hope you have a great rest of your day and see you in a couple weeks.